from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Tuesday, March 9th. Today, life after vaccination. A look at Israel's mass vaccine program and the drop in birth rates in France. And as more Americans are vaccinated, a growing body of evidence now tells us that there are some activities that fully vaccinated people can resume at low risk to themselves. This is why today, CDC is releasing its initial guidance for the public that, for the first time, lays out some of the activities considered safe for those who are fully vaccinated. On Monday, the CDC released the long-awaited, eagerly anticipated guidance on what fully vaccinated people can do. Lena Sun is a health and science reporter for The Post. And I think people were really hoping that it would give them a very specific list of what they can and cannot do. And instead, it's more sort of baby steps to something resembling a roadmap for return to normal life. But it's pretty general and it sort of breaks things down into, you know, buckets of what vaccinated people can do with other vaccinated people and what vaccinated people can do with people who are not vaccinated. Okay, so let's talk about what are the different buckets. What can people do once they've been fully vaccinated? When they've been fully vaccinated, and the definition here is two weeks after you've had your final shot, you can hang out and spend time with other fully vaccinated people indoors. Already, you know, being outdoors is much less risky. But if you're vaccinated and your friends, another couple or another couple are also vaccinated, you can gather indoors in your private home and have dinner and not have to wear masks and not have to physically distance. So that's good news for grandparents. They can go and visit their grandkids or, you know, the return of the dinner party, which I, for one, am super excited about. But are there still risks involved for both people who are fully vaccinated and people who are not vaccinated? Well, that's where it gets a little bit trickier. So, you know, when you're vaccinated, fully vaccinated, you have a much greater protection. But Nothing is 100%. The vaccine is not 100%. So if you're fully vaccinated, that means you're protected from getting really serious illness, from hospitalization, from death. But what we don't know is whether you could still get infected and not have any symptoms and also pass on the virus to somebody else. So let's say you are a fully vaccinated set of grandparents and you want to see your grandchildren who you haven't seen in over a year, maybe. You can get together with that family. Let's say your daughter's and her kids, you can get together indoors without masks and you can hug them and you can kiss them. But you cannot get on a plane and fly to L.A. to see your grandchildren. 
CDC advises you not to do that because then you are increasing your risk, not so much on the plane where there's lot of air exchange, but because you're queuing up in line to get seated, you're in the airport, you're encountering a lot more other space. So this guidance for grandparents and for people getting together is really when you don't have to travel. Okay, let's say you live here in Washington and your grandchildren are in Philadelphia. You could get in your car and drive one shot to Philadelphia, right? Okay. Without stopping and mixing and see your grandchildren in that home. But let's say the neighbors want to come by and see you as well. That's more than one household. Then you should Mm. be wearing masks and physically distancing and maybe not be indoors. But let's say to make things complicated, you're the grandparents and you want to visit your daughter and grandchildren. But let's say your daughter is undergoing cancer treatment or has some other kind of immunocompromised condition, then she is at higher risk. And anybody in the unvaccinated household who is at higher risk of getting COVIDs. Mm -hmm. That's something that you need to factor in. And then CDC is advising that, okay, maybe you should keep this outdoors with masks and distancing. But for people who are fully vaccinated outside of a private setting, how should they gauge their risk, like in public, like a grocery store? So if you're fully vaccinated, it doesn't mean you can just throw the door open and rip everything off. (laughs) You are still needing to wear your mask and stay physically distant and do all that stuff when you go to the grocery store, when you go to public places, because the people in the grocery store, they're not 100% vaccinated, right? And you could still spread it to other people Mm -hmm. and they could still infect you, even though the chances, the risk is much lower. And The CDC also outlines scenarios where if you are fully vaccinated and you're in certain settings like prisons and group homes, that you have to take greater precautions because those settings have higher risk, they have higher turnover, there's greater risk that the virus can be transmitted. But if you're fully vaccinated and let's say everybody in your dentist's office is fully vaccinated, you could go and make an appointment and get your teeth cleaned, right? Because they're fully vaccinated and you're fully vaccinated. And in private settings, in your home, if you're fully vaccinated and someone else is fully vaccinated, yeah, go ahead, have a dinner party with no mask and no distancing and hug your guests. I can't wait to hug. I think a lot of people cannot wait to hug. That joy from hugging, that need for human contact is something that people are yearning so much for. And I think that it, from people I have spoken to where they've been able to do this, it people just burst into tears because they're so happy. And that's what I'm going to do when I get vaccinated, when it becomes my turn. I'm going to meet with my friends. I'm going to meet with people in my family who have been vaccinated, and I'm going to give them the longest hug, such a long hug that you've never seen before, such a long hug. When I've talked to public health experts, this is the thing that they also share. And, you know, as a reporter who has been covering this, for oh, more than a year, it's the first time I've actually talked to anybody and they've used the words joy 
and wonderful feelings because they have been vaccinated and they have been able to do certain things that they did not want to do before. So I am not going to be picky about if I get Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson & Johnson. Whichever one is available, I will go there, I will get in line, I will get an appointment, and I will get vaccinated, <laughs> and then I will get together with my friends, I will throw an enormous dinner party, cook a lot of food, <laughs> bake a lot of pies, and laugh and hug. Lena Sun is a health and science reporter for The Post. Israel has really gone very fast, faster than any other country, in fact. They, after about uh, two months into the vaccine rollout, have reached more than half of their population, small population, just a little bit over 9 million. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. He spoke to our producer, Lena Mohammed about Israel's vaccination program. What are the results that they are seeing so far? I mean, they've vaccinated so many people and it's been like two months now. What are the results? Well, they're seeing some real signs of getting control of the pandemic, especially when it comes to the older, most vulnerable citizens. The numbers of really serious illness, critical illnesses and deaths has declined remarkably in that older cohort. I've talked to hospital administrators here who say that their biggest fear of the pandemic, which was that the number of very sick people would uh, overwhelm the entire health system, that's largely gone away. Uh, there are still people in the hospital. There's still quite a large number of people testing positive, but, but those people tend to be younger now, the people less likely to be vaccinated and less likely to be very seriously ill. So, while the pandemic is far from over here, there are real uh, feelings of hope and optimism among the officials who are in charge of driving down the, the worst of it. And how are they able to vaccinate so many people? I mean, just looking, for example, here in the U.S., we've been having all sorts of problems with our vaccine rollout. So I'm just curious, how was Israel able to do it? Well, they really benefited from their small size, a population of just over 9 million people, and a very centrally organized national health system. Every Israeli citizen and resident belongs to one of four publicly supported HMOs. They have a long history of public vaccine programs with normal childhood vaccinations, a really strong infrastructure, and meticulously digitized health records on, on every participant. So that really set them up to be uh, quite a bit easier to reach every eligible citizen than a country like the United States, where the federal system mm -hmm. overlays over 50 different state systems. Everybody's got slightly different rules. The logistics are just a lot more challenging. It just pays off to be a small country with a very, very modern national health system. That's super interesting. Do we have any data on who they're vaccinating? Yeah, I mean, uh, they started with kind of frontline medical workers like a lot of countries have, but their first uh, population demographic were the oldest Israelis. And that was an aggressive push. And now two months in, they have reached almost 90% of Israeli residents over 50 years old. And that's 
Jewish Israelis and the Palestinian Arab Israelis who live on this side of the of the old green line. So it's uh, on this side of the country, it's been a very equitable rollout. What about the Palestinian territories like, you know, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip? What's going on there? Well, there's a much more dire situation there. They are both experiencing significant uh, continuing outbreaks, uh, a lot of positive cases, a lot of hospitalizations, and not nearly the same access to vaccines that um, that Israelis are enjoying. This has been a very... I just want to make sure I understand it. Who is actually in charge of obtaining the vaccines for those places that are occupied by Israel, so like the West Bank, the Gaza Strip. Is it the Palestinian authorities, for example, in the West Bank, or is it Israel? Well, like so many things here, that's really a matter of dispute. Uh, human rights organizations and a lot of uh, advocates for the Palestinians say that Israel has both a moral and a legal responsibility to to provide or to assist in the acquisition of vaccines in these populations where they are effectively in control. Israel rejects that argument. They say that the the Oslo Accords from the 1990s very clearly puts the responsibility for public health with the governing bodies in the West Bank and Gaza. That's the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas, the ruling militant group in Gaza. It's been a bit of a standoff. Israel has provided some small amounts of vaccines uh, targeting some of the health workers in the West Bank, and they've allowed the delivery of some donated uh, Russian Sputnik vaccines mm -hmm. to Gaza. But until very recently, there was no effort on Israel's part to really assist in, in great numbers. Now, there's just been an announcement that Israel is going to provide up to 120,000 inoculations for Palestinians who routinely cross into Israel to work. So this is a population of Palestinians that's interacting in Israel and going back and forth and has long been a source of concern to public health officials as a likely vector for cross-infection. What are the health officials saying about this? On one side, they're doing so well that they're an example for the world. But on the other side, the situation is so dire. Like, couldn't, like, isn't it, isn't it a, a, a public health problem? Yes, and you get a different response when you talk to public health officials than when you talk to politicians. There's been a lot of recognition that this is basically one population in a shared region and that the pandemic can't be controlled by inoculating or protecting only half of the population or leaving one significant chunk of the population unprotected. Now, the politicians, um, as always here, are trying to balance a lot of different concerns. There are Israelis who would complain about giving their vaccine, as it were, to Palestinians, whom they view as hostile. And, you know, there's a very long conflict at, at work here. Mm. Even some politicians have said, when we get more of our citizens vaccinated, then, of, you know, we would be willing to share more of our vaccine. I think we're beginning to see that now with this first program to vaccinate the Palestinian workers. But I, I don't know if we'll get to a point where Israel is doing a whole lot more to vaccinate on the Palestinian side. But at the same time, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is sending spare vaccines to like some of Israel's allies. 
Well, that sort of blew up in uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's face. He did announce that there would be some, as he as he said, symbolic amounts, really quite small token amounts of a few thousand doses sent to countries that, um, uh, if the reporting is correct, are by and large are sort of uh, friends of Israel, countries that are enjoying warming relationships with Israel, and that includes Guatemala and Honduras, two Central American countries who have both recently put their embassies in Jerusalem, which is a very contentious issue here always, and Hungary and the Czech Republic, who have also signaled that they're ready to establish some kind of diplomatic presence in Jerusalem. And there are other countries on that list. But the blowback was was pretty fierce and pretty immediate in Israel. Some of his political opponents made a lot of hay on that, and he very quickly reversed himself. And at this point, I don't believe Israel has plans to share significant amounts of vaccine with with any other countries. From your reporting, you're talking to to health officials. Like, what are they saying about the like the situations in the territories? Like, is vaccinating the workers enough? Well, you know, I mean. Probably they think, yes, it is, because there's not so much traffic between the West Bank and Israel, except for these workers, that, you know, it really amounts to more than, say, the traffic in through the airport from Europe or the U.S. or anywhere. So I I don't think that the unvaccinated Palestinians is their biggest concern, if you're just talking about strictly, you know, control of the epidemic thing. They're they're more worried about they're more worried about the ultra orthodox coming in from New York, frankly. But they do recognize, and they will say that, of course, we we need to make sure the Palestinians are vaccinated, and and the Palestinians they have a plan of their own. I mean, they're participating in the Covax program, and they've gotten some donations from Russia, and they hope for more from the Gulf states. So, you know, when you talk to the public health people here. That's not their biggest concern. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. Lena Mohammed is a producer for Post Reports. And now, one more thing from correspondent Rick Nowak, who brings us to a maternity ward on the outskirts of Paris. When I arrived at the Saint-Denis public hospital, we'd been told it's one of the busiest hospitals when it comes to births. The exact opposite um, was what we found. I spoke to Rick about the sharp drop in France's birth rates. One of the nurses that showed me around was Martine Mabiala Muziro. She told me that this is a hospital that's very often under pressure. There's a lot happening in, in the maternity ward. And when we were there, nothing was happening. It it was pretty much empty. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of people joking about how when we finally all kind of emerged from our social distancing and our quarantining, you know, that a lot of 
babies would basically be born because of all the time that's being spent at home. But it seems like it's the opposite, at least in France. Do we know why this is happening? Well, the researchers and doctors I spoke to are really blaming a lot of different reasons. For some mothers, the pandemic probably created a lot of social anxiety, but also anxiety about their own health, about having a baby during a pandemic, being in a hospital. But a lot of researchers I spoke to blamed the economy, economic anxiety um, that has come with the pandemic. Um, to understand more about, about that factor, I, I went to a food distribution site for mothers in, in Saint-Denis, um, which was completely crowded. It's really small things would disappear, but mm. a lot of people just live on small things. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. for them, 20 euros less, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. you cannot eat yeah. five yeah. days. Yeah. I spoke to Magali Bragard, uh, who founded the association to help mothers in distress. Yeah, for yeah. 20 euros, it changed your life because you can buy food or yeah. you cannot for a week. And yeah. uh, so it changed a lot if you cannot buy food for a week. They were expecting to do this as a sort of short-lived project, but interest has only grown, more mothers have shown up, and clearly there is um, demand until today. And when we're talking about a baby bust, give us a sense of the numbers, like how, how big of a drop is this? Well, in France, the impact seems to be especially pronounced in parts of the country that were really hard hit by the first wave of the virus. So that's primarily the east of France, where some hospitals experienced 25% fewer babies born in January compared to, to the same month last year. We, we now also have national figures that show that across France, births declined by 13% in January. And that's, that's essentially unprecedented, at least when you look at sort of the last few decades. How universal is this decline in birth rates? We're probably going to see the same trend across developed countries. In Italy, for instance, even in December already, um, we saw a massive decline in 15 major cities across the country. Uh, researchers have expected or predicted the same to, to happen in the United States and other countries in, in Europe. In some countries, um, the the impact might be a little bit delayed. Uh, I was talking to researchers in Germany, for instance, where they have not seen the same kind of decline so far. But that might be related to the fact that Germany didn't see so many deaths in the first wave, but that the lockdown there was also a lot less strict in, in spring 2020. And what are the impacts of something like this? Well, it really depends on the question whether mothers postponed their plans to have a baby or whether they abandoned them. And that's a question we're only going to be able to answer probably in a few months' time. And then it'll become crucial to see if governments can step up and, and provide mothers and families with economic reassurance, with the ability to predict that they're going to be fine at the end of this pandemic. Rick Nowak is a foreign correspondent for The Post.
that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.